just want to keep with my theme of uh, positivity. Not, not that anyone's trying to be negative, that it's very hard to be successful on Amazon. Just like it's very hard to start any business. I mm -hmm. think like the amount of businesses that stay in business after a year is like, I don't know, 10, 20%. Mm -hmm. That means 80% of people fail. Mm -hmm. And if you do get into this, you probably will fail many times. I have for sure. Most of these influencers and people online don't talk about the failure, but it's definitely there. There's cash flow shows, there are issues, there's account suspension. So it's not easy. But I don't think any business is easy. And I think that while there's these challenges, Amazon and online, especially now, I mean, it's still in its infancy. So there's competition in all the, all the detractors that we mentioned, but there's so much opportunity. Like I've, I've seen people make, we have clients like literally four or five dudes in their basement doing hundreds of millions of revenue on Amazon. And they're making a ton of money. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Kosher Money. If you're new here, we try to help Orthodox Jews and... All kinds of Jews and all kinds of non-Jews with their money. And we have an exciting episode today, the big, wonderful world of Amazon. Can you really make money on Amazon? How does it work? Is it too late to get started? What should I know about Amazon? How much money are people making? We had all these questions and we brought in three big players in the Amazon market. We had Pearl Osh, Eddie Levine, we had Eitan Wiener, names that people in the Amazon industry know, and I'm excited to help you learn more with the help of my friends, new friends. And I learned a lot about Amazon in this episode. It's a bit of a longer episode, but I think if someone really wants to get into this space, this episode is a must-listen um, what not to do is just as important what to do. Aton started a conference um, specifically helping Amazon sellers, people in that space. Um, it's called The Prosper Show. And he's been involved in Amazon for over 10 years, maybe 15 years. Uh, you know, these bios that they sent over just goes on and on about all the different pieces they're involved with as it relates to Amazon. Pearl is very busy with global expansion. If you have an Amazon store, how does it work when you get into other countries and how do you build that out? Eddie Levine was our initial contact in the Amazon space. He is, I think he's been involved in e-commerce for almost two decades now. Um, he speaks at conferences. He helped rally Pearl and, and Eitan over to the studio. And we had a very enlightening conversation. So without further ado, I give you Pearl, Eitan, and Eddie. Enjoy. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. We've never done an episode on Amazon, so I'm excited to do this. People have written in in the past. They want to learn more about Amazon, the buying, selling side of things. I've gotten dozens of questions submitted. We had a call last night, which we probably should have recorded because it was spectacular. And in the intro before, I've introduced you already, so people are familiar with, with, with what you do. But um, my first question is, when is my package arriving? Should have been here last night. People, it's synonymous, right? We've gotten, we've come from the 80s, the 90s. It used to take a week, two weeks. You know, you submit an envelope and you send it out and you get a package. We're living in a world where Amazon is king. And you guys, girls know this very well. 
Uh, my first question to each of you is, how did you get into the space? How did you get started? Pearl, I guess we can start with you. Sure. Um, so I actually was a seller myself um, quite some time ago, probably nine, 10 years ago. So basically what we decided to do was come up with our own like uh, chocolate, candy, gift basket line. And where's the best place to market yourself to in front of an audience of millions of people? Amazon, right? Or so we thought, right? We thought it was going to be really, really easy. So basically, you know, we did it according to the holidays that, you know, those were the categories that we, work, we, we were working on. Um, sh- you know, bottom line is what we were struggling with, and that's the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now, is the logistics of making it happen. So we were sourcing, let's say, the gift baskets from overseas and then, you know, the candy and whatever. Some of them were coming from also, you know, cross country and all that stuff. And where we were struggling was with the assembly. So we decided we're going to actually get a warehouse, rent a, you know, a space, get the people, all that stuff. And fast forward, we were doing amazingly well. We were doing actually just in the month of December over a million dollars in sales in just a four week period. Um, But what happened was, is the rest of the year, the overhead was killing us. Mm. And this is why the space of the 3PL space is something that, you know, sellers today are much, you know, more savvy about and Eddie that's something that you do what's 3PL uh, for those that are unfamiliar great question it's a third-party logistics uh, warehouse location basically it's it's a space that many different companies use to do various different things right so putting together let's say gift baskets right I, I don't think that's something that you specialize in but you could find a location that specializes in that where they could do the kitting for you assemble it for you and if I would have had something like that I would have cut out the overhead from three quarters of the year, mm. right? Because what happened was, is I had three quarters of the year with a huge overhead that mm-hmm. the time it came to my real season, it, it ate up all my profits. So these are some of the things that I learned and was able to apply to what I do today. So actually what I do is I do global expansion with Amazon. So we help sellers expand businesses overseas. Mm. But the whole point is there's so many more resources to you know, be successful today versus when I was doing it. But the opportunity is there mm-hmm. um, regardless. And um, yeah, so there's there's so much to learn. So right. this is, you know, I took what I learned and we ended up selling the business, not for as much as people are selling their businesses today, mm-hmm. not even close, um, but we had beautiful branding. We sold that part. Um, but um, yeah, we learned a lot and we applied it to what we do today. I have a thousand questions already sure. and I'm hoping this is <laughs> going to be a, a great hour plus of Amazon learning. Eitan, how did you get into the business? Yeah, good question. Um, I was in online marketing, like digital marketing, um, kind of accidentally got into e-commerce, um, started selling on eBay, and we built a Magento website, and then I kind of hit Amazon. So all, over the last, I think, 10, 11 years, I, we'll probably talk about it more today, but I think I did every single Amazon business selling model from arbitrage to private label to branding to exclusive. So we built the business up over, let's say, from 2010 to 2019, mm-hmm. and then I sold it to another company like around two years ago. Um, that's, that's been the common idea. theme so far. People are creating businesses yeah. on Amazon and they're selling it. Yeah, so as Pearl said, it's it, it's kind of dying down now, but it was a very, very hot fad for the last two years where companies called aggregators were buying companies for crazy multiples and crazy amounts of money. Mm-hmm. It's a whole whole separate podcast. But um, in addition to, to being an Amazon seller, I also started something called The Prosper Show which is you know cool if anyone wants to come and learn about mm-hmm. Amazon. It's a, it's a global seller show. And as Pearl mentioned, when we 
all of us kind of started selling. There was no support, help, community, or podcasts. Now there's so many, mm-hmm. uh, almost too many. So our goal there was to create a show where there's vendors, where there's education. And thank God it grew nicely, and it's uh, it's a really good place to, to check out. That's spectacular. Eddie, yeah. how many businesses have you sold in this space so far? Uh, I'm a little bit different. Well, same, but different in, this, in the sense that I haven't sold my business, but I've rapidly evolved with the, with the times and have progressed throughout the years in different models like Aton has. Um, I'd say from how I got into this business, though, it is very much in my blood as being an entrepreneur, as being a... Well, you do have um, that Jeff Bezos look. Yeah, you know? I, mean, I decided to, to yeah. shave my head a little bit closer right. than I normally do. So I guess you could say we could, we could, we could, we could be cousins for today's right. episode. Um, but I remember when I was younger, before, way before e-commerce, uh, I was not the kid who, you know, ran home from school and wanted to play basketball or anything else. I was the kid who came home from school and I went to the end of my driveway to sell lemonade because it was 50 cents and I could make $5 and $10. And that was a lot when you were, you know, six, seven, eight years old. Uh, so I did that and I sold uh, everything under the sun, lemonade, chocolates, wrapping paper, uh, sold things for people that were, that didn't want to do it on eBay. Um, that's a bit later, but I was doing that when I was 12, 13 years old. Um, you know, I started that really, really was my first venture into e-commerce. That was in 2002, I'm showing my age here. That's okay. Um, but the, uh, you know, after the eBay, uh, business kind of winded down when I was furthering my educational studies after that, um, you know, Amazon really popped up and it popped up when I got back into it in, uh, 2012. Um, and similar to Aton here, I was in pretty much every model under the sun that you could imagine for an Amazon business, whether it be that, you know, arbitrage or wholesale or, or PL private label type of type of environment. So, um, have had experience with all of it. And, uh, that kind of brings us to where we are today, which is that we are sellers ourselves, but, um, we offer, uh, services to other brands and uh, sellers as well, including uh, brand management on the platform and also the third-party logistics that Pearl was referring to uh, for warehousing and, and needs like that. So the elephant in the room, and this is the question I was receiving the most of, is can I become extremely wealthy from Amazon, right? I love my nine to five. I like my nine to five. I dislike my nine to five. I hear people are selling on Amazon, is that something I can get into part-time and have an additional revenue stream for my family? I'd love to chew on that for a little bit. Eddie, someone approaches you, they come into one of Aton's conferences and they say, I want, I want to make a big on Amazon. What's your answer today and has that changed over the years? I think my answer today definitely has changed over the years. If you were to have asked me that same question you know, let's say five years ago, I would have said there's a lot of people in the in the marketplace today that do this as a hobby or as a second, you know, source of income. And um, well, I guess my answer is that it changes and it doesn't change. It doesn't change in the fact that there are still a lot of hobby sellers, people who are not doing it full time. That's that's a fact. Um, but the other side of the coin is that there are so many more who are doing it full time, and the marketplace has gotten or become very competitive. Um, to the point that I think to do it on a part-time basis uh, and expect uh, such drastic boosts of, boosts of income or drastic changes into your life when you're not putting forward the or not able to have the 
uh, full-time go at it um, is what's challenging these days. So what happened there? It used to be in the past, Pearl, where I just went to Alibaba's website, bought a ton of merchandise, probably didn't even ever see the merchandise, listed on another website. And from there, I'm, you know, coming home telling my wife, yeah, I made a hundred grand today and I didn't even touch a product. Right. So, so when Amazon started, right, they wanted to scale this business, obviously, right? They first started out as just selling books, right? So when they started out, it was like, whatever you could possibly get your hands on, right? You went to Costco or you went to Target or wherever and you found a good deal. You went on Amazon, you listed it, flipped it. Great, worked very nicely. But when you have so many more people doing the same thing, what happens is it starts putting a bunch of, you know, headlights into these big brands that you're actually, you know, selling their stuff. And they're like, wait, we have to get a handle on this, right? What's going on? Firstly, you know, let, let's talk a second about, let's say, electronics, right? You have electronics, you had Apple all of a sudden, you know, having people reselling their stuff or Dell or whatever, and people had warranties that actually didn't belong to them, right? They had warranties that belonged to the person that actually bought it originally, mm-hmm. and now somebody's selling it on Amazon, what do you do, right? So that was an issue a lot of these electronic brands were dealing with. So you have one thing like that, and then you have companies that have map pricing. Let's say, let's go to, you know, the bugaboo carriages, right? I think that's gonna speak to, let's say, the Lakewood audience or, sure. you know, to the, the Brooklyn audience, right? They have something called map pricing. You want to buy a carriage, right? That's fine. But you're never going to find the price of the carriage changing anywhere. Why? Because they have a really big handle on those carriages or the Atlanta shoes, right? Maybe a lot of the audience is kids wear those shoes. You're never going to find somebody selling it for cheaper. Why? The company has a handle on the prices. They don't want somebody to go and cheapen their brand, right? So that's the issue. So people are selling it on Amazon, right? You were selling it, Ellie's selling it, Eddie's selling it, and then you have a hundred other people doing the same thing, right? People are going to collect all the good items they could find mm-hmm, at Costco, mm-hmm. and it starts becoming a price war. So mm-hmm. everybody wants to get a sale, right? They want doesn't to buy like, from their list. Doesn't sale. sound like it can make much money on that. Exactly. That's one issue, or the other issue is people have to get rid of it. So they're going to start selling it under, under the value of what the company wants you to actually sell it. It devalues their item. Mm-hmm. Right. So the company starts seeing these things and they start putting in violations to Amazon and they start reaching out to Amazon saying, look, it's your platform. You have to take responsibility for it. So that's when Amazon started becoming much more stringent with our rules and started saying, guess what? You actually can't sell this brand anymore. And they started, you know, closing down certain listings and starting to give people seller performance notifications where either they shut them down or they were gated for a certain category. They couldn't sell, you know, for that category or whatever. So this is when, you know, the side hustle became like, it's not a side hustle anymore. You got to become a little bit more creative and figure out instead of just reselling, you know, this phone, um, let me actually create something on my own, Mm. right? Let me start figuring out how can I source this product, actually come out with my own brand, logo, identity. And, you know, you could build something like what Eddie mentioned earlier, private label is something that that's the dominant, you know, category that or way of selling on Amazon right now where create your own thing. Hopefully somebody is not going to replicate it if it's not you know easy enough to do that. Um, but that that's what's happening now. So this is where it was and that's you know where it's at right now. It's, it's not so easy as it used to be. Right. So practically if someone's listening, they have this idea for a kitchen apron that glows in the dark and they want to create the product. They do a search. They can't find anything similar to that. What can they practically do to establish relationships? And I open this up to, you know, you each have your own skill sets within this vertical. 
what what can they practically do to get started? Maybe know if it is something that they should go after. Everyone has ideas, but it comes down to execution. But maybe not invest your grandfather's $20,000 into something that you'll be back to square one tomorrow. Where should they start and how should they know even if it's a good idea? Yeah, so we spoke about this last night where, and Pearl mentioned it too, where there's this concept or in the evolution of Amazon sellers where you can go on Alibaba and find something cool and like put your own name on it. But what you just mentioned is different where you have this new idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you could still go to Alibaba and find something similar and have a factory modify it. But thankfully, there's many tools which we could list um, that help you do these things. So you could do advanced research with probably hundreds of different tools on which keywords are trending or ranking. Or if you were to make X product, how much would it sell? And it's really data and math driven. Now there's a lot of variables like advertising and cost of inventory and logistics challenges. But the cool thing is, despite all the difficulties that Pearl mentioned, it's a huge opportunity. So just to touch on your last question, no, it's not an overnight success and it's not side hustle, in my opinion, strongly. That just doesn't work. But if you spend time and you use all the tools out there and the community that exists, you can make a lot of money. My business audits sellers for discrepancies and issues. We see, I speak to many sellers mm-hmm. and I see a few guys in their basement that are doing hundreds of millions of revenue. And then I see companies that have 100 people that are doing 3 million in revenue. Mm. So it really depends on how you align and what you focus on. But certainly it has to be, in my opinion, a real business because, you know, coming home with your wife saying you made 100 grand, that same person will probably lose 100 grand the next, in the two, next two or three weeks because of all the changes that we mentioned. So it's it's like a real business. It's not, you know, child's play. Right. You mentioned factories, right? If someone was to create something, and I have a neighbor who is in the space. He has his own e-commerce website. He sells on Amazon as well. And I remember a few years ago, every 10 months, he would tell me, oh, I'm flying to China tomorrow. Now with COVID and their strict policies, getting into China is not easy, which makes and exacerbates the building of relationships with these factories. So how do you jump over that hump if you feel like you've done what you've described, you've done the research, and the people you've reached out to say you you do have an idea here, how do you develop that relationship so you can create a good product at a good price? I I think the key element here is to understand that it's not just you that's going to be impacted by the issues related to COVID and the issues that come out of China. Um, everyone's got that same issue. Unless you're a Chinese passport holder, you are not getting into the country. You have not been able to get into the country for the last two plus years. So everyone's sort of on this level playing field, even though everyone's fighting this uphill battle in terms of not being able to beat boots on the ground. That's number one. Number two, China's economy is dependent on foreign exports or the exports they do to foreign countries of materials and product that, that you know that their economy revolves around what they manufacture and what they make what they send out um, so not having the ability to have people come into their country to conduct commerce um, is definitely hurting them as well and there's factories that have gone many factories that have gone belly up over mm-hmm. covid um, they just didn't survive similar to many businesses unfortunately on our side that for one reason or they didn't survive like, e-commerce or not doesn't matter just saying business in general um, so I think there's my point to this is that there's you're not so much on a uh, disadvantage because of COVID and because China being closed. It's it's almost more of a question of 
making do with the current situation and trying to find alternate ways to communicate and conduct business because you can't go there yourself, but the Chinese companies need your business to survive and therefore they're going to make adaptations to be able to um, retain your business and be able to continue working together somehow, some way. It's not like they're, you know, everything is, is fine on their side as well. So mm-hmm. um, I, I guess I turn that question into more of a positive statement in the sense that uh, it's not doom and gloom in that sense. Are there other countries to, to look at besides China if someone was to want to develop a product? Look, you can certainly look at other countries. You can look at uh, some of the other ones that have been looked at uh, most commonly that I've seen. India, uh, Mexico, in our industry, there's uh, leaders in our space who have uh, led led um, trips to these countries and have and have you know uh, tried to educate sellers on the uniqueness and the intricacies of working with different countries. And I support that. I think that's a great thing to diversify. Um, whether you want to do that uh, to other countries abroad or here at home, that's that's your decision as a business owner. Um, I would just make a blanket statement here that you know if you pull all the sellers in the market and all not just sellers, I should say all businesses that that make product, uh, you'll find still an overwhelmingly large amount of businesses that do source from China. That's just because of the nature of the game and how long they've been in the manufacturing space that they've. They've developed their country on this. This is not something that even a pandemic over two years is going to be able to uproot and change. Um, I think uh, we talked a little bit about yesterday. I think the true impacts of COVID, what it does for us domestically, what it does for them internationally, how how it changes or evolves the process of sourcing product. I don't think we know exactly what that's going to look like yet. I think it's early. Um, when COVID, I mean, knock on wood, COVID is, uh, you know, on the downswing right now and it's not as, as bad as it used to be. Um, but until we're, I think, much further past this and we have a chance for businesses in general to normalize, I think we'll start seeing the true impacts of what COVID did. Mm-hmm. I think it's premature to, to speculate. Yeah, I agree on that. Pearl, you mentioned that you're busy with uh, global expansion. To me, what does that even mean? Because if I'm a seller, I'm putting a product on Amazon, let Amazon put it into every uh, country, every city across the world, and they'll just pay more for shipping, hmm. right? What, what does that mean to be uh, to have a, a successful product within the US and then say, I want to do more business in Brazil, Israel, and so on? Sure. Great question. So, you know, I like giving this example of let's say when you're traveling to Mexico, right? going on a nice vacation with your wife and you're on the plane, you're ready to get off and the stewardess comes to you with your customs declaration form, right? You have to start declaring of, you know, exactly what's in your suitcases or what's actually on you, anything expensive that you need to declare. Now, I know myself, when I do that, I start freaking out. It's like, am I putting down the values right? Am I, do I know what I'm doing here? Anytime you're importing into a new country, there's actually, you know, an import tax. You have to declare it a certain way. So same idea as like when people travel, packages travel as well. So when I'm selling in the U.S. marketplace and I'm shipping it to Amazon's U.S. marketplace, Amazon does have a shipping program where they have different carriers that are integrated into their system, which they call Seller Central, where you log in, you're able to list your items, ship in the items that you want them to fulfill for you. It's called FBA. Um, and what does that stand for? I... Fulfillment by Amazon. Okay. Where basically you're shipping into their warehouse locations. And then when a customer places an order, 
they take over. I saw a new warehouse pop up here in the five towns, Amazon. Yeah, um, I guess there are third party warehouses, but then there's also Amazon fueled. Exactly. So something like what Eddie would do is he would get, let's say, containers from overseas. Let's okay. say people bringing it from China, and then he would probably help ship into Amazon. Okay. People or do direct to consumer if they're doing individual orders. Um, but for the most part, most people selling on Amazon do FBA. Okay. It's just easier, and they have such crazy rules on how fast it needs to arrive to your customer. Like you mentioned, how quickly things arrive to people's doors. Mm-hmm. That's FBA, basically facilitating all of it. Can Can I just interrupt you for one second? Sure. Just Just to point out something here about FBA I think is important. Um, one of the common questions is that I get from a lot of people who want to start this business is why why need, why do you need FBA? What's the point of it? I mean, if you can ship yourself, yeah. it just seems like it's redundant, right? Yeah, I'll use FedEx or UPS. Yeah, but the thing is here, you mentioned Amazon with all these warehouses. It's important mm-hmm. to note that Amazon's got hundreds of these in the, in the nation, all built up now all in almost every state. I think there's 50 states now, 48, something like that. Um, Amazon will own a state at some point. Pretty much. Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. Um, And I think what's important to note here is that when sellers send in goods to FBA, like you were mentioning, um, they might be sending to one, two, three locations. But Amazon, from the moment that stock arrives into that fulfillment center or those two or three fulfillment centers until it's sold to the customer, and that could be weeks or months later, that stock is constantly rotating between dozens and dozens of more facilities because Amazon is setting up your inventory and frankly all sellers inventory to be a just-in-time model from wherever the buyer is. So my product will move from New York to Connecticut regardless of whether I've sold a product because they want to be ready in case Connecticut people are. So if if you've got a customer who wants to place the order, that's how they can ensure that it gets there in that uh, prime speed. Otherwise, you're shipping across the country left and right. And is it is it a perfect model? No, of course. I mean, there's products that at some point or another, a certain day, a certain product is going to take an extra day or two. Uh-huh. That's that's the that's the reality of, of life, right? Um, no logistics operation in that scale, I, I think, is flawless. As much as Amazon will claim that they're that they're flawless, they're not. Um, and and I think that sellers need to realize when thinking about that FBA program and the benefits to it, that's a key element of it in the sense that buyers are now trained to expect goods within hours. Mm-hmm. Forget days. That's, We're so that's not a thing anymore. That's all I'm thinking about. And, as, and, as and, go. Right. And suddenly when you've got to wait for a product for two, three, four days, that God just forbid. becomes intolerable. Yeah. So sorry to cut you off, bro. No, you're good. So so continuing with that, yeah. right? So the, the problem or the, the issues some sellers are facing with certain categories is that the Amazon US market is so saturated, mm-hmm. right? And they want to look for more opportunity of you know expanding their business and not necessarily I have to create a brand new category or create a brand new product. I could actually take my product and see what other opportunities do does Amazon have. So Amazon actually has 18 marketplaces throughout the world. So they have in Canada, in the UK, Australia, Singapore, UAE. Etc. There's so many of them. What does that mean, marketplace? And that means they literally data- have Amazon. There's Amazon.com, right? And then there's Amazon.au, Amazon.ca. Total different marketplace. Nothing to do with Amazon.com. What happens in a country that doesn't have a marketplace? They're not able to receive Amazon goods? So they might. There might be an option where the seller, let's say, fulfills it themselves from the U.S., and they say, okay, I ship out of the country. Uh-huh. And then they go onto DHL's website or whatever, and they create a label. But that's something that's going to be very expensive mm-hmm. for somebody. Let's say if you're ordering from Amazon Canada, right? It might be very expensive for you to order it 
because it's not FBA. Uh-huh. So we're, what Amazon has is they have these FBA options in these countries as well. Now, the only difference is, like I mentioned earlier, Amazon has integrated carrier options in the U.S. where I want to ship into FBA, right? I want to ship into Amazon's warehouses. I sell in the U.S. I'm based in the U.S. I could buy either UPS shipping through Amazon, very, very cheap, or FedEx, or they have different carrier like trucking options that I could purchase through them. And then it ships into the U.S. market. But when it comes to I want to do FBA in Canada, Amazon does not provide you with shipping options. The reason being, they don't want to get involved with customs. Like I was saying about customs, let's mm-hmm. say you traveling into Mexico and dealing with that on a personal level. Imagine dealing on a commercial level, right? Mm-hmm. So typically the way it works with the international market is that somebody that receives the shipment is the, is the responsible party for the shipment. Is the importer, sort of, um, as they call it, and is, per, is the person that's responsible to pay for the taxes. So I don't know if you ever ordered something for overse- from overseas and DHL or UPS called you before they made delivery and said, okay, uh, you actually have, let's say, $50 EO before we deliver because of the taxes. So mm-hmm. that's normally how it works. Now, being that Amazon is the one receiving these packages overseas, mm-hmm. they don't want to take care of anything shipping related. They don't want to pay for the taxes. They don't want to be the importer. They don't want to get any any anything uh, related to government or bureaucratic stuff. They don't want to get involved. Mm-hmm. So what they say is you have to figure out how to ship it yourself. So this opportunity of, let's say, selling in Canada is huge for people, right? They're, they're in, a, in a U.S. market. It's very saturated. They're selling, let's say, these cups. Hundreds of sellers are selling these cups. They go on to Amazon.ca and they see hmm, only 20 people selling these cups. And actually, actually, I could sell for even more because... Less people fighting over this listing, I could sell it for more, better margins. So they actually have to go find a option how to ship it. So this is where we come in. So we actually are Amazon's number one recommended provider for this, mm-hmm. where Amazon will send us these clients that they're scouting to sell globally, and they'll say, cool, first choice shipping, they'll help you with everything. So it's not just the logistics part of it, it's not just the shipping part, there's so many different moving parts. There's the product compliance, can I actually ship this product mm. globally? Some countries have different rules for different things. So let's say if I'm shipping it to Japan, right? Japan is crazy when it comes to customs. Anything that literally touches the body or goes into the body is, you can't get it through customs. Mm. So there's different ways on how to go about it. Special licensing, special certifications, things like that. So that's something that we help people navigate through. So the opportunity is huge. Why? Because so many people don't want to get involved with all these little details, right? Mm -hmm. And then the shipping part of it. So, um... And then, of course, the saturation part, mm-hmm. right? So if you're dealing with a lot less sellers, and the Japanese market happens to be, by the way, is the second to largest marketplace after after the dot-com. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot of opportunity, not just on dot-com, but yeah, that, that's basically you know what we specialize in. We spoke before about private, private labels. Is that your recommendation if someone was to want to get into this space? Is, is that the best way now to make money as a seller to create your own product? I just want to, for those that will follow up and want clarity on that. Amazon has become a brand-focused platform. They, all the tools they've developed, all the resources they've put in place, all the teams that they've built out have been developed to service different aspects of the business, but they are targeting the brand owners. You should have something that is uniquely you, that you own, And um, it's not to say that as a non-brand owner, you can't sell on the platform. You certainly can. Um, 
you just be at a, at a stark disadvantage to those with brands just because you don't have access to all of the things that brand owners have. And like I was mentioning earlier in the podcast, um, with Amazon becoming, frankly, it already is, but continuing to become more and more uh, competitive and almost every category, frankly, every category, um, not having all of those tools and levers to pull for your businesses, uh, I think going to be detrimental. You just want to add, <clears throat> I don't know if we mentioned this category last night, but this is something I like to say because to your point, it's hard to get in the game. There's a lot of competition for all of the reasons we spoke about. There's a lot of businesses here and everywhere that are old school, right? Businesses that are brick and mortar retail or, you know, my dad has a plumbing business or, you know, all these like different types of businesses and they're just old school. So let's say plumbing, I like to say, for example, you can catalog all the plumbing parts in the world and list them on Amazon. I'm sure some people have tried, but despite the saturation in, in, in products, like people have old school businesses, mm -hmm. they're still not online yet. Like it's going to take another 20, 30 years. Those are the opportunities. Mm -hmm. I used to do that work in like niche telecom and areas mm -hmm. where they're just not online. So if you you know own a certain space in the brick and mortar world, which is not fully online, and I'm sure there's a lot of people you know, in the community or in the area that just have you know, B2B wholesale businesses or retail businesses, they're just not in e-commerce. So it's kind of like a brand, but it's not like what you said, oh, I'm going to make a new brand with an apron. It's like, I already have a brand. I sell medical supplies to nursing homes. Why is it not all on Amazon? Mm -hmm. You'll make direct-to-consumer margins. Mm -hmm. You already have a product. You just have to change. Now, that's not easy, and you need help, and you're going to go to international, and you need 3PL, but it's very doable. And th that's where I see a lot of success, when people make the proper pivot. Mm. Um, so that's just low-hanging for people who already have profitable businesses they should they really sorry they need to evolve right covid showed that they need mm -hmm. to evolve mm -hmm. and it's not as hard to to do what you mentioned is also doable but harder right because you have to create a brand create a design create a strategy also doable but not as as low-hanging it's two other points about products in general um there's a big difference between private label pl as we refer to it in the industry and white label white label being product already exists you're changing nothing but slapping a label on an existing product and calling it yours that's not private label that is like i said white label mm -hmm. um there's nothing unique about it you're likely facing lots of competition there's no difference between your product and someone else's other than what it says on the box mm -hmm. private label um something uniquely you you've changed something you've improved something you've brought something out from scratch something that makes it intricate unique something that's you know best case scenario you can protect somehow right um you've got You've, you've got some claim to fame here. That's point number one. Point number two is that in this quest for developing your next or first, for that matter, private label product, um, you can't get married to a product either just because it's you think it's cool. Um, it glows in the dark. It doesn't you know? matter. I mean, it might be. It might. You might think it's cool. Right. I might think it's cool. Pro might think it's cool. It doesn't matter. Uh, the fact here remains that. The only person it matters to in terms of how cool it is is the customer. Mm. Um, you know, I I, I um, have mentored a lot of people in this industry, and young and old, and everywhere, every which in between, right? And the common theme is that I see in terms of one of the ways that people trip up is the fact that they get married to this idea. As I mentioned, it's going to solve this this uh, issue in the mm. marketplace, and it's the greatest thing ever. But the fact of the matter is, if there's not a demand for this, you need to you need to understand the market intelligence and the data, which there's tons of software tools. That's another podcast we can do. Um, 
out there to help Amazon sellers and would-be sellers understand this market. Um, but if you're not going to take the time to review that data and really use it to your advantage to try to start or grow your business, you're already failing before you started because you're not targeting it the correct way. Um, people that walk through my warehouse, uh, especially you know this this day and age, but even when we were younger, they would ask me almost the same question every single time: What do you sell? And my answer is always the same: I sell whatever sells. I don't care what I sell because at the end of the day, it matters more what the consumer wants. So you know, you can walk through my warehouse today, similar to where you to where we were years ago, in the sense that I've got everything from pretty much every category on the shelf. Because, well, if it's ours, then it's it's one thing. But if it's our clients, it's another. But everyone's in a diverse category. Um, and the smart sellers, the ones who are doing it right, are, yeah, they've got a niche that they're proud of. And they've, you know, there's certainly you can you can uh, be happy with their success. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, the product that you bring to market has to has to solve a customer need. Um, if it just if it's something that just solves your need and no one else cares, you've got a problem. We'll be right back to this week's episode on Amazon. But first, I want you to Google Shmuel Shaiwitz's name. Yaakov, take a look at this. Four hours ago. And then click on the news tab. Equity sharing lets homeowners sell a slice of their house, should they. Mortgage recast, how to save money. Time to worry that real estate will crash like it did in 2008. He knows a lot. Yeah, these are articles by him. And and more than that, his social media presence, he's great. He really breaks it down and gives a very easy to understand what the market's like, how to actually go ahead and uh, increase your real estate portfolio. So let me give you an example. I bought my house in 2016 at $715,000. have a mortgage. And the house I could probably get if I were to sell, which I'm not, I could probably get over a million dollars for it. Yeah. So yep. should I take, Where would you move? Um, Down the block? No, st- probably still in the five towns, but anything I'm going to buy right now would probably be just as costly. But that said, if I wanted to take equity or take money out of the house and maybe invest it into buying a small apartment and generate some income, mm. who would I ask about that? Shmuel... Shiowitz. There you go. He's over at Approved Funding, approvedfunding.com slash mortgages. Reach out to him. People who want to invest in real estate, want to get a, a better understanding of how it works. He's very, very resourceful, knowledgeable, and he's accessible. You know what's also great about him? He's not. He doesn't pressure you. A lot of times you, you speak to someone who it's in their very best interest for you to go ahead and do a deal with them or do you use them for work, but he truly is not there to help himself. He's really there to help you. And if you have any questions, you're not really sure, just give him a call. He's so easy to talk to or go on to his website. Approvedfunding.com. And now back to this week's episode. So let's say you create that, right? You create a product that solves a, a customer's need. You're excited. It's going well for a week, a month, a year. You wake up one day, there's 15 copycats, you know, beating you on price. You know, I'm just a day away from going back to being a nine to five accountant. What, what am, what's there to protect me, if anything, uh, for these folks that are searching just as well as you to see what's selling and copycatting you? 
Yeah, so there's the so Eddie said about there's the creation and all the reasons why you should make some something based on supply and demand. Mm-hmm. But then the maintenance is actually harder. Not to scare anyone, it just is. Meaning, yeah, 10, 20 people can copy you. They can go to the same factory. They can look at your shipping documents. Like there's no end. There's Chinese sellers. There's threats. Um, this is where it gets hard. So there's trademarking of a name. There's patenting, which is more expensive and sophisticated. Even those work, but just to get someone kicked off the listing or to let Amazon and appeal, I mean, it could take sometimes weeks or months or years. So the real way to do it is, I mean, it's usually like the case in business, like just try to do the best you can with your own, within reason. Um, there's always competition in the world, right? If people see what you're doing, they're going to try to copy it. Mm-hmm. It's just dynamically different online. Um, but for sure, take those measures to make sure you're protected. And most importantly, you have to monitor the landscape. So every day, you have to use these tools to check your sales mm-hmm. and who is competing. And we didn't speak about this yet, but most of Amazon sales now are driven by advertising, like Google, pay-per-click. It used to not be like that. In the good old days, I used to sell on Amazon. You don't have to pay. Now you pay 10 20 30% of your uh, retail price in advertising. So you have to be on top of advertising. You have to be on top of competition and tools. If, you, if you're not, it's very difficult. If you have something that's so unique, okay, that's great, but that's very rare. Uh, you bring up an interesting point, and actually, I just it came back to me because I was before we recorded this podcast, I was in Florida for a few days, and um, I went to a store actually to buy a, a product specific brand that I was looking for. And I went up to the clerk because I didn't see it in the shelf. Normally, I know the store carries it. And I said, "Do you happen to have this product? Because I've seen it here before. I bought it here before. I just need another one." And he looks at me and says, "Oh, we've discontinued our partnership with that brand. We don't carry it anymore." And I said, "Oh, I mean, is there a problem with the product? Is it, you know, is it?" And I, I wasn't aware of anything. Uh, he said, no, we're just making our own. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and now that you mention it, it's, it's oh, light bulb in my head because I didn't think anything of it yesterday. I just said, okay, well, whatever. They're, they're bringing something else out, different option. But now it kind of makes sense because they've, this store, right, this this merchant, whether they're only brick and mortar or also e-commerce, I don't know exactly if they are or not, um, they've figured out that they there's value in bringing their own product to market that they own, mm-hmm. that their margins are easily probably significantly better um and they've got long-term sustainability they've got a product they know will sell because they've been selling a similar one already they've probably done enhancements and changes that you know they've they uh he actually told me to my face he said you know we're bringing out our one that's going to be different colors different sizes different uh, different features so um the more i think about that conversation it didn't even hit me at the time but it's exactly what we're talking about and that was in a brick and mortar setting can you imagine in e-commerce mm-hmm. um that's disheartening that's- to me i'm scared because if i was to put my love and money into you know a, a product and building it up i could wake up a day and I, I guess i'm rehashing this point but that's scary for me to want to get into a business that you're telling me i need to put 110 percent in and that could be ripped out from under me but, here, in but a here's, flash. here's the thing what i would say to you about that forget e-commerce any business is risky any business it carries risks uh the unknowns the fears the i mean it to be a business owner it takes a certain caliber as a person Mm -hmm. forget what you're doing what service you're providing what product you're making it doesn't matter that's why the nine to five job for certain people exists and there's nothing wrong with that um certain people just are not entrepreneurs and that's fine i mean the world goes around many different ways and we all you know, for the most part, we, you know, we, we find ways to, to, to work with each other. Um, but, you know, it's, it's something that 
I, I think as a business owner, if you're if you're looking to get in this business, or start it, grow it, whatever the current stages of your of your uh, journey, um, to expect that the business is going to be risk free or not worrisome at times, especially in e commerce Amazon business, uh, I think you're you likely have the wrong expectations. Understood. Yeah, I, I think you could say that. I'm sorry. Dan. Oh. I think you could say that with every business. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Amazon tried making diapers, baby diapers. Remember that? They bought diapers.com. They ended up buying off diapers.com oh, okay. because they don't work out. Oh. So they actually, you know, they're collecting data, right? After, after all after all is said and done, whatever they're doing, they're collecting mountains and mountains of data or countries of data. So obviously diapers are something that everybody needs. So they decided they're going to make their own line. And this was a couple of years ago and it failed really, really badly. Okay. Amazon failed really badly. At Amazon. Right? At Amazon. <laughs> so I, I think that proves a point where it's, you know, you could have all the money and all the resources, but mm. if you don't have that team and that structure or the idea and the packaging to go along with it and the marketing to go along with it, you could fail flat on your face, even if you're Amazon. Mm. And they ended up buying golfdiapers.com or pampers.com. I'm not sure which name they go by. Um, but, but the point is that if, if you are laser focused, you have a vision, you know what you're heading, where you're heading to, and you have a brand that speaks for itself, there isn't much to worry about. You know, and that, that's something that I'm also very busy with with my team internally. Um, I'm the chief operating officer or in the EOS method, we call it the integrator, where if we have, you know, a three, five, 10 year vision plan, and we know where we're going, you know, I remember when I was learning to drive for the first time, and I kept looking to the side of the road to see if the cars are crashing into me. My husband's like, look straight ahead. As long as you look straight ahead, nobody's crashing into you. Mm-hmm. I think that's with everything in life, mm-hmm. right? So it's the same with a product. It's the same with any business. As long as you know where you're heading to, nobody could come and come in your way. And obviously, you can't be you can't be a fool. You have to you have to know what you're doing. Like Aitan said, you have to be on top of things and you know follow whatever tools you, you have and, and take the data and, and use it to your advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, but to always be afraid of you know what's behind you. That, that's something that's never going to work. I think it's it's uh, to be successful. I think you you just can't look at the the what ifs, what could happen, the worst case scenarios. I think as a as a responsible business owner, I mean, I I'm trying to think back a few years ago. The number one question I would get asked: This is pre COVID when the conferences were you know going on all the time, and now they're getting back into place. But um, one of the core questions that I would get asked at by new sellers and people looking to start this business was, well, aren't you worried that it could just disappear one day and Amazon could suspend you or they could do this, that, and the other thing? And because, you know, Amazon has their their performance teams and their expectations, which new sellers sometimes don't read carefully and they, they make missteps and they face the consequences. And yeah, I mean, do they, do they suspend the sellers and do sellers lose things sometimes overnight? Yeah, absolutely. But I can't operate my business and nor do I choose to, lose, to live my life. Um, thinking about what ifs, because like Pearl said, you have to be razor focused forward. Um, I think if you live in, in, a, in a situation where you're worried about what could happen, and I understand that it's sometimes it's not easy to take your mind off of that, but you got to try. Um, I think if you uh, are constantly thinking about that, you're going to make it impossible for yourself to move forward. Um, so what if Amazon suspends me tomorrow? Well, then I'll deal with that tomorrow. Uh, right now, it's not a fire that's burning right now, so we're going to keep trucking. You know? Gotcha. Yeah, that's the difference between a nine-to-fiver and yeah, an yeah. entrepreneur. Oh, yeah. That's what you got to deal with. Right? I was just going to add to address your concerns or fear 
which which are valid, is that they've dissipated since. Those are more encouraging words. This right. is, I think, a little more practical in that. Yes, twenty five people may copy you. Amazon has hundreds of millions, or you could argue billions of customers. So, mm-hmm. like, how much do you need, right? Mm-hmm. If you you make this phone case, I was looking at a phone case today. There's like nineteen versions of Pixel phone cases, mm-hmm. but they're all. And I and I know the data, right? I know I kind of know the game. They're all selling very well because they all have a different niche. Some use different keywords to appeal to different customers: women, men, you name it. Different countries, different styles, children. So there's sub there's subtleties. Mm-hmm. You could use different keywords. You could use different colors. You could list in Japan. Like there's so many shades. And f- and f- and furthermore, again, for our conversation last night, we're talking about Amazon now. I know, but I'll digress a bit to other channels. You can create your own Shopify store, your own website. And get your own audience from Instagram or Facebook or Google Ads, and you create your own destiny. So Amazon's a bit crowded, and I know this is a separate topic of other channels, but it's necessary because, yeah, if you're just on Amazon, you will have immense competition, and you don't fully control your destiny. Mm. But if you diversify, you you, can, you certainly can. There's an interesting statement that uh, that you make there with the phone cases because I'm thinking back to what I, I, buy, I buy phone cases online regularly when I get a new phone or need a new case or whatever, um, my search is usually starts with, you know, whatever color you want, whatever model phone you have, phone case, right? So blue, iPhone, what are we on, 13 now? <laughs> iPhone 13 phone case, right? So I'll get the results for that. And you can guarantee the person who's on top of there is paying a fortune for ads and pumping out a lot of money to try to... to I never click on those ads. I always feel like I'm getting a higher markup if it's sponsored. So I'm like, I'll go to the first organic you're, result. You're you're an, you're the minority on that because... Am I educated though? Or that's well, not necessarily Most true. people don't know to know that there's right. an ad. They just, oh, okay. they roll with it. Right. So my point here is that if I search blue iPhone 13 phone case... Mm-hmm. Okay, I get the results, but suddenly I'm, oh, I want this one because this one's molded differently. Oh, I want this one because this one has a grip or this one has this. This one has a cutout. This one, you know, things that I would have never searched for that these sellers are now marketing their product because they know this would be a cool thing that, you know, the buyers will be receptive to. I would have never searched for uh, this kind of, you know, this product in this fashion, right? But sellers are smart and sellers have learned ways to try to market their product outside of how you would typically think to describe them. And I think that that's um, what truly makes those sellers and even selling similar products, I think that's what makes a lot of them successful is when they're able to differentiate in certain ways. Let's do a few rapid fire questions uh, before we get back into it. If someone was to create a store today, how quickly, you know, if they were to input their different products, how quickly can they get that launched? Are we talking here, it takes a month, three months, a week, a day? What's the turnaround time if they got their hands on inventory, their grandfather has a plumbing supply and he wants to get that store up. How long does it take? Does Amazon charge them to create a store? And what percentage does Amazon take on a purchase? Like Eddie could answer that question, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's a that's a broad question. It depends on I'm the I'm looking product. for very specific answers. Give me a number. <laughs> no, but go ahead. Yeah. Uh, rapid tough. fire. Yeah. Uh, it, my answer is it depends. That's how rapid it is. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, it depends. Uh, it depends on the product. It depends on the kind of material it is. It depends on where it's coming from. Different suppliers have different lead times, right? So you could, if you're going to do a small product that's kind of off the shelf and they've got it, a mold ready to go and they can manufacture it quickly and you're especially if it's small and they're going to air freight it over here mm-hmm. and it's cost effective i mean you're talking a few weeks probably um if it's like normal products that 
you have to do uh, the design on it, you know, craft it, make make a mold, and then test it and all that stuff. You could be looking at several months for it to be launched effectively, and then even more time to get it selling and, and profitable, right? Hopefully, if everything works out well. Um, it, again, it really, really depends. Um, it, it strongly depends on the, the product it is. Um, your question in terms of how much does it cost, again, depends on the category. Amazon charges their they call it a referral fee, which is basically their commission for using their platform. And that's on an actual purchase. On a to purchase. put up the the page, it's free. free. To, to put up the page is free. To build a store to make your account is free, except for if, you, if you're a professional account, there's a small monthly fee, but that's 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 sort of irrelevant here. Um, to build you know, the listing itself, it doesn't cost anything to list it for sale. Now, there's if you're going to use the FBA program that we've talked about and you're going to send product to Amazon, they're going to charge you for storage space on a monthly basis. Mm. So don't let it sit there for months and months and months without sales. You're going to pay for that warehouse space, mm. right? Um, so, you know, you've got those. But then from the referral fee perspective, their commission, depending on the category, I think the average is anywhere between 8 and 15 to 18% um, off the, the sales price. Um, you know, but on top of, you've got several things to consider. You've got product cost, you've got logistics cost, you've got, uh, testing costs, um, inspection costs, etc. You've got, um, Amazon referral fees, their commissions, you've got FBA fees and you've got ad costs. Um, those are six things and certainly not all of them that you've got to consider when you're bringing a product to market and trying to launch it. Um, there's more, there, you know, there's. If you've got people working for you, there's their salaries, there's insurance, there's, you know, I could, I don't have enough fingers to count, but um, all these things have to be considered. Is there, yeah, go ahead, bro. That, that's the mistake most people make, right? They, they look at making an investment and they count it, you know, till it actually arrives at the port and they forget how much it actually costs to start running it on Amazon. All those things you just mentioned, you could double whatever your investment you anticipated to have, right? The Amazon advertising cost alone make you know make the numbers it's well, it's think, something you have to take into account when you're investing that and, that's going to cost and think about it there's a lot of things that can change uh that are unexpected the i think the number one thing that changed for most sellers last year and the year before during COVID is the is the logistical cost um you go back to 2018 2019 shipping a full container you know a 40-foot container from china overseas to the US, depending on where it was going, West Coast or Midwest or East Coast, anywhere from 3,500 to 6,000 maybe is your high end, right? To get it into 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 the US and it delivered. I mean, at the height of COVID, worst case scenario, there was people paying more than 30,000 for a container. So you're talking 5X on logistics costs alone. Hmm. Um, I don't know of many sellers who have the ability to pay 5x in terms of logistics and still remain profitable yeah, on a, a lot of products. I mean, people had to discontinue products left and right or had to change their pivot and et cetera. So there's, there's risks there. Um, but now we're in a stage of hopefully continued normalization to, to, to for lack of a better term, where it's certainly not $30,000 to send in a container anymore. But the days, I think, the days of um, three to $5,000 containers, I don't think we'll see them again. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of write-ups and a lot of uh, insight from the shipping carriers alone when they say we can't make money on that. We've been losing money on that, frankly. Um, now you see costs at seven, eight, ten, dollars 12000 something around there, um, which is the going rate these days. What it'll be in three, six, three, six months, a year, we don't know. But... Um, you can't just assume that the costs you have today are what's going to be uh, in 
what is what it's going to be, you know, in the future. Right? Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to adapt and have a have a strategy in place for when things do change. Just to shed a, uh, a different light on it, not that this is negative, it's practical, but you said how long does it take account to set up? We could go right now, put in our name, email. Mm-hmm. If you're uh, looks like you're a normal U.S. citizen with no issues or credit issues, you could be selling in a few hours. Sometimes Amazon will profile you because they don't want fraud. So if you start selling and you do $10,000 in two hours, they'll, they'll slow it down. But from a... That's if you have the product. From entrepreneurial <laughs> side, yeah, if you have yeah. the product. We're not talking about the product. Let's, like let's say you just... My father's plumbing star. Yeah. 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 Um, my father's actually a doctor. I just, I don't know why I said my father's plumber. But uh, it's like, you know, the, the father that's a plumber. Just, uh-huh. just I do have some questions um, <laughs> from a friend who is a plumber. He wanted to talk about um, like professional installation. And there's a whole marketplace yeah. for um, people like a plumber that can get into it. But yeah, continue your point. Okay, for sure. I actually like the plumbing topic. It's my good example. Um, anyone could, we could set it up right now. We could start selling a few thousand dollars a day. Uh, Eddie mentioned the fees. Um, again, you just got to be careful as you scale and grow up because of all the restrictions that we mentioned as well. But if you have your hands on inventory and you want to sell, you list it, you sell it, they take their fee, you get paid in usually two weeks, mm-hmm. and you're, you have a business. So, so that's the positive side. So you don't need a $150,000 to get started in the Amazon space, you right? No, absolutely not. No, Depending what kind of level you want to start at. There are some people that go to Home Depot still, right? right? And they'll buy some things and they'll resell it. I, I actually know someone that's doing that now. Right. And it's working for him. Right. But then, you know, if you're like, if you're thinking scalability and actually yeah. owning your own brand and something that not tomorrow, this brand that you're reselling is going to say, oh, sorry, you can't do that anymore. Then you probably want to invest with time. You know, maybe that's a good way of you getting some cash flow and then you're going to invest further. You can, but it's possible. You can learn the system that way too, without right. without having to wait months or invest yeah. thousands exactly. of dollars. Exactly, it's in, like a training ground yeah, for right. training success. Training right. training Interesting. Yeah. At what point should someone say, "This is not working out. This is not for me. I don't have the right strategy." You know, if it goes a week and it's not being successful, I would imagine they're going to continue. But maybe it's not a level of time, but in certain markers, they should look out for along the way that let me put my energy into another space amazon is not for me what would you advise someone who is getting started or is it really case dependent i don't think it entirely is something that you can put a time limit on because i think that someone is someone who is deciding their fate of their business just by how long they've individually tried something is kidding themselves because um i think you mentioned this earlier in the call but um you know, thinking back to when I started Amazon in 2012, really from 2012 to 2014, 2015, there was no e-commerce community, it didn't exist. Everyone was closed-minded for themselves. We certainly didn't have all these conferences that we have today. We didn't have all these networking events. We didn't have all these Facebook groups, podcasts, etc. Um, so I think as someone starting today, they're, they're lucky in the sense that that now exists. Um, so I think that if you're going to come and tell me that you're giving up because it didn't work for you. My number one question to you is how else did you try to learn? What mm-hmm. else did, who else did you try to learn from? What else did you ask? What other questions did you ask? Because if you're going to tell me that you didn't take the opportunity to network and use those free resources that are out there, um, my answer to you is, okay, you can quit, but I think you're missing um, something that can really help you. Um, and, I, and my advice would be to, to try to expand your, broaden your horizons, um, not just with communities that, you feel you fit into by geographic, uh, business model, religious belief, doesn't matter. 
I'm talking about look at all the communities near and far because you're going to find a diverse network of experience. And um, I would respect someone's decision to get out of the business much more if they were able to tell me that they've tried those different angles and they still didn't have success for A, B, C, D reasons. At least I know they tried, not just themselves, but they tried to help themselves. Kolel Chabad. This is the 10th episode we've been telling you about Kol Chabad, and we're just as passionate as the first episode. They now have a Pushka app. If you want to give tzedakah on the go, right? And it's a Ramir Balanes tzedakah. So if you ever lose something and you say, I want to give $20 to Ramir Balanes tzedakah in hopes of finding the item, you can now do that simply from an app. How cool is that? They've been at this for over 200 years, helping Israel's neediest. You know the drill. Help support them. They create smiles on the face, uh, the faces of people who legitimately have no money. Um, if they're not well, if they're older, and they just have no resources, they will help them in so many different ways, and they're really good people. I saw a photo of the former ambassador of the U.S., David Friedman. He went to visit um, Kol Chabad. They're available. You can do a tour there. You can help with your family. It's a really, really awesome opportunity. If you're ever in Israel, look them up. Tell them Kosher Money sent you. Um, but try to give them. You know, Even if you stop listening right now or while you're listening, download the app. Go to the App Store and search Kol Chabad Pushka, Kol Chabad um, your money's going to go to a really good place and there's nothing more to say. So do it, do it quickly and even do it often. You can do a recurring donation of $5 a month. And before you know it, you'll be receiving Nachas reports, happy photos of the people that they're helping. It's a really, really cool way to give back if you have the money to do it. Now back to this week's episode. I once joined a telegram chat made up of Amazon sellers. And you mentioned PL as private label. There were so many acronyms in there. I had no clue what was going <laughs> on. But there was this sense of community where people were helping other people, people that were new to the chat were being helped by veterans in the in the industry. And that was kind of cool. You know, I imagine there's a lot of competition, but there's a lot of um, close-knit community feel t- to it all. Is that a good way of describing it yeah I, I think it's it's beautiful to watch you know you go to any conference which which i like to do and you know meet clients and it's there's something really really nice about it i, th- I think it evolved over time because you know when everybody was doing retail arbitrage or online arbitrage where they were going literally from store to store you might have met your neighbor or your friend doing the same exact thing right where now people are a lot more sophisticated and they're they're doing the private label right they're not afraid they're going to bump into you know, somebody that's doing the same exact thing as them. And I think there's so much to learn as, you know, if I'm set, selling, you know, uh, gift baskets and somebody's selling, uh, you know, linens, there's there's so much I could learn without, you know, taking away any of the industry secrets. So I think that because it immatured the audience uh, or rather the, the industry, I think it made people more comfortable with being able to share. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's very nice. I mean, you, you could reach out to most people like I, i'll have it so many times where you know even today we had a client that called in they wanted to know if they could put on to amazon labels you know certain like a bunch of SKUs. i had no idea what the answer was mm-hmm. so i suggested to you know this account manager that had the question come in you know call one of the clients that you have a good relationship with and ask them could they help and they're like sure let's get onto a zoom and they help the person out so nice i have this all the time people have questions 
how do I do something? I'll get a client on the phone and they'll help that other client out. So it's what? it's very nice. Sorry, when we started this this Prosper show, again, it was to address this issue that there was never help or support. Mm. And I'm sure you guys remember, you used to have these guys would walk around and their badge was backwards. Yeah. Because, you know, they didn't want to tell you their company. I still have it sometimes really where I say to someone, what do you sell? And they're like, you know, I don't talk about that. There's so much, there's so many ways where I could just analyze Amazon as discussed before. It doesn't really matter if you tell me what you sell or don't. But then when it was like Wild West, like if you told someone what you sell, like I sell power banks, like they were going to go source it. But on the contrary, again, there's always greedy or selfish people, but most people are helpful. They like to help. There's Telegram groups, there's WhatsApp groups, there's Facebook groups. At Prosper this year, uh, or, or even last summer, you know, it started as uh, as a small show. I don't know. There must have been combined 20, 30 after parties, 40 networking events, masterminds, like thousands of people that came just to go to groups, not to the show. Mm. That's like so different than I ever imagined. And, mm. and it's nice because there's so many groups you could join and you could learn like like a school, how to do everything, you know, from A to Z. Mm-hmm. And they're all out there. They're, you could Google them. It's, it's really it's really amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, I just would add to, to, to that part about the, um, the conferences and, uh, themselves. Um, like Eitan said, if you go there with the mentality of there's nothing in the tracks for me, I, I can't resonate with anything that's, that's being presented here, you can't worry about that uh, in the sense that that's the major- probably, I would almost say 10 out of 10 people that I talk to and I ask what was the best part about X conference, Y conference is the networking. Yeah. Forget the forget the topics. I mean, yeah, they have the topics there for mm-hmm. for to, to try to drive some kind of audience. But um, you can learn that on YouTube anyway. I would imagine you, you don't need you a can, session. You can and you can't. But the, the fact of the matter is, there's nothing to replace real, authentic conversation, business owner to business owner. Mm. That's that's the true mm-hmm. nature of the game. I mean, you can throw the best world class speakers on the stage, and we have a lot of them as, in this industry. But the fact of the matter is. Anyone who's presenting on stage is coming to you with a pre-scripted agenda of what they want to talk to you about. When you are networking with someone face-to-face or in a group setting or at dinner or what have you, you never know what's going to come up. And you're learning from each other and it's all of a sudden it's not scripted. Like this podcast is, sure, we have some talking points, but it's none of this is scripted. We're giving you our feedback that's certainly different than yesterday and certainly different than we had planned in certain aspects, but that's what makes it good. Mm-hmm. I think that's what will resonate with everyone listening to this is the fact that you know it's this is how this what you're listening to today you know think about that you know 100x 1000x whatever when when you go to these conferences i mean there's so much to learn and you're three four days will go by in a flash mm-hmm. it's no secret that as a buyer or a seller rather communicating with amazon is sometimes difficult they're a behemoth um, you know, the performance teams that you've mentioned. Do you think that this sense of community was formed as a byproduct of that relatively closed door on Amazon side? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's sort of like it's us against Amazon, which is crazy, right? Because everybody's profiting off Amazon, but that's sort of like that. There's that feeling all the time is like, how do we, how do we fight the beast? You know, mm-hmm. like, how do we figure this out? And yeah, I see that all the time in these communities where it's like, oh, you need a plan of action, which is basically when the seller performance team reaches out that, you know, you have an issue with a listing or your account, people will share their plan of actions all the time and say, you know, you should write this and you should write that. Don't word it in this way. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like talking to, to a robot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we discussed this, that 
it's sort of like the IRS. You, you can't pick up the phone and speak to them. You mm-hmm. can't understand from them exactly what their issue is. You mm-hmm. have to like literally like reading a piece of Gemara. Like you have to read between the lines. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost impossible to know what they want. And it would be impossible if you wouldn't have people to talk to about it. Mm-hmm. So when you have a community behind you that has already dealt with this issue and you say, look, this is what I'm dealing with. And you have 100 people or, you know, how many people are on these groups? There are thousands that will say I've had the same experience and this is how to deal with it. Or there's even these, you know, bigger networking situations where they will escalate in a big way and bring it to the attention of Amazon, where Amazon doesn't want to have like a PR nightmare. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they'll be like, oh, this is going to be in the news soon that we shut somebody down without a legitimate reason. Mm-hmm. And they'll open them up for these reasons. And that's communities and sellers coming together um, and actually, you know, escalating in a way that they help each other out. One of the things that gets asked commonly to Pearl's point is that, um, you know, why why does Amazon turn a cold shoulder in a lot of time in a lot of situations to their sellers because their sellers supply the goods, which then goes to the buyer, and they need them for this cycle to work. Um, I bring this up almost every time I'm talking on a podcast or at a conference with people who are not in the business yet or are new. You need to understand the Amazon flywheel. You can Google it if you want to look at it. There's an actual image of it. It's basically Jeff Bezos's vision of the company when he started it. And there's a lot of points on it, but the the key element here is that everything revolves around the customer, not the seller, the customer. So if the decision that they're making doesn't positively impact the consumer, they're not gonna make the decision. So if you're thinking about one thing as a seller saying, you know, they should do this because it's gonna impact, you know, it's gonna help me and it's, and it's gonna make me successful, whatever. If it doesn't have a net positive result for the buyer, for the buyer, it doesn't matter to them. Um, right, wrong, or indifferent, that's just the way their business operates. The faster, the the faster you accept that and understand that business philosophy, the better off you're going to be on Amazon's platform. Because too many times I see sellers who don't understand that mentality think that they should be able to. They're king, right? Because they're seller doing X amount of volume or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, whether you're a seller doing $100 a month or $100 million a month, you're a seller. That doesn't matter. The volume does not matter. I'm sure there's different things that other sellers that sellers get into at certain stages. But at the end of the day, you're a seller. Uh, if you ask Amazon, a seller doing six, seven, eight figures in revenue, Amazon cares more about that buyer who's paid $10 for an order because they're a customer. Yeah. That's the truth. Cool. It's interesting. You mentioned um, how the buyer is in control, right? What, and our audience, I would say 100% of our audience is buying on Amazon. What tips do you have in mind that a buyer should keep in mind when they're purchasing on Amazon? I tell you, like, I stay away from the sponsored links just because I feel like I'm being marketed to, and it's not necessarily the best product. What I'm looking for, I'll look more organically. Should consumers be looking at reviews more closely? I know I'm swayed if a product has a, a cool video with it, I'm sold. Like, you have invested the time to show me all four angles of the product in purchase by now. Um, what should buyers keep in mind to better use Amazon? And to piggyback off that, are there things people should not buy on Amazon? and better buy it from a brick and mortar or another place online i think um we spoke about fulfillment before so we spoke about fba fulfilled mm-hmm. by amazon 
So the alternative is MFN or Merchant Fulfilled where you actually ship it to the customer. Mm -hmm. Like to your point before, that's cool. You can do it. But everyone got spoiled, right? Oh, I get this product the next day. So if I order a product from you and you're not FBA, you're just shipping it from your house, you have good reviews. I'll probably get the product. It's going to take me five, six days. I'm not saying people shouldn't order that, but what you don't have is like this Amazon guarantee or promise. So they may suspend the seller or if they continue to ship poorly or damaged or whatever. But if it's in fulfillment by Amazon, it's as if you're buying it from Amazon, which is why it's amazing. It's an amazing program. So you'll get your money back. You get your money back. There's a guarantee. You can Mm -hmm. return it with no problem. So I'm not saying people should not buy from non-FBA, but FBA is just easier, less risk, et cetera. And that's just like a speed convenience thing. There are some products that are really big, bulky, sophisticated that are not an FBA that you certainly could look to purchase. Um, You know, then it goes into kind of your reviews question and, and videos and images. Uh, yeah, most sophisticated sellers work to enhance their images and content because you basically have one shot mm-hmm. in the search to show how you're great and videos are better and it's a very big thing now. So it doesn't mean the other product is worse, but from a seller perspective, the more you can do to beautify and explain why your product is great, the the more you'll sell. So those are just two, two of the points. Hold on, I wanted to piggyback off that. because While you're thinking of that, I'll add that from from your marketing question, when you said you tend to avoid sponsored products, I could see why you do that because Amazon has this uh, this mentality from a lot of buyers that a lot of this is fake, and surely there's issues on the platform with reviews and things being manipulated. That's that's no question. Um, but I think you also have to understand that Amazon, the success of an Amazon seller and the success of a product, is heavily dependent on ads uh, these days. So. Um, most often than not, any seller who's selling a product is going to do some kind of ad targeting somewhere. Um, so I do think it's an, it's a bit aggressive to say you would avoid ads completely because that's just kind of how the, the platform is built and how it's successful. Um, there's just a, a, a certain amount of caution that has to be used with that. Um, that's, that's all I would say with regards to the ads front. Um, one other point that I would bring up from a buyer perspective, uh, this is more of a trick. Uh, if you wanted to Love try tricks. it, yeah. go ahead, lay it on me. Uh, if you've got a product that's listed on the platform, or you're buying a product, I should say, if that product has multiple sellers offering that product, um, those sellers will compete for what's called the buy box, which is that featured spot on the listing page that says, you know, sold by XYZ company, filled by Amazon, whatever. Um, but usually under that seller, there's a link that says this product is available from all these other sellers. You know, there's, it could be two, three, four, five more, maybe more, it depends. Um, if in fact you go to add that product to your cart from that featured buy box seller, the one that has that buy box, and let's say you add it to your cart and it says, oh, it's going to be there in three days. And you said, oh man, I wish I could get it in a day or two days. Add that offer from multiple sellers into your cart and you'll see which one comes up as faster. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times, those different sellers inventory is in different locations at Amazon. So if you add those to your cart and then you can qu- and you go to mock a checkout, mm-hmm. you'll see which one gets you fast and you can buy that one. Oh, interesting. Um, let's talk about returns. I saw an article recently that some retailers are forgoing returns because there's a real cost to having to pay for the shipping and being busy with that. They rather you keep the product. Um, I know when I get an Amazon product, you know, if it's under a certain amount of money and I don't really have use for it, I'm not going to spend an hour or two trying to figure out 
uh, how to return that product. So one question is, is there an easy way for, for a consumer to return a product hassle-free? And B, how do you guys look at returns and reimbursements and things of that nature, which I'm sure is a key component uh, for an Amazon seller? So I actually have a company that I'm an investor in that does like returns management that mm-hmm. I started like a while back. And now I actually focus on reimbursements, which is more on the seller side. But um, I just, back to my story, I bought a phone case and I actually, my fault, I bought the wrong phone case. It was like a Pixel 6 instead of a Pro. Mm-hmm. have to return it. So this morning I went to Amazon, clicked return. They give you a barcode to go to a UPS store or if something, that was my fault, right? If you're honest about it, which you should be. If you're not and you say, oh, it was your fault or if it really was Amazon's fault, they'll mm-hmm. come to your house for free, pick it up. Mm-hmm. Pretty hassle-free. They're extremely, Teddy's point, customer-friendly. So mm-hmm. no matter what the customer's right, on my returns business, we get, and Pearl knows this too, crazy returns with wrong items and you name it, and Amazon doesn't care. So the point is if you're a seller, you have to really be careful what your return rate is. For a lot of these private label products which we spoke about that are $20, $30, they have no resale value. So they sit, Amazon charges for the storage, and then you pay a company to, re- to send it back and to, and to refurbish it. It's just not worth it. Unfortunately, what most people do is they dispose it. Maybe Amazon will give it to charity. But there's a whole underworld of returns. There's many articles about it, to your point. And it's not so easy. If it's a low-end private label item, you should probably have Amazon destroy it, which is a sad reality. If it's a high-end item like a, a, a microphone like this, you can't do that. So you need processes in place to send it back to the vendor or to refurbish it. And there's companies that do it. Um, but, you know, if you're living, let's say, in uh, you know Israel and you're selling brands into the U.S. from China, like how are you going to manage returns? Uh, it's a very big hole in the supply chain. And people, as e-commerce grows, everyone focuses on growth scale but no one thinks about the, the dirty, messy stuff. Um, so I think for the customer perspective, it's super easy. And that's why all these retailers are getting hit because they don't know how to handle the, the flood. And it's, it's a big problem. What are buying groups and what should our audience know about it? I don't know if you three are the right people to ask, but I, I do know I have some friends that are involved in these WhatsApp chats where they're buying inventory together collectively in large amounts and maybe they're flipping it or getting stuck with it and sometimes they are making money is that a a feasible logical smart way to get into amazon or should people stay away from that completely there there it's called a buying group i I don't know if you want to comment yeah Yeah, i'll I'll take it i guess for better or worse at the risk of (laughs) at the risk of making new friends and enemies i'll take this one (laughs) Um, I don't think they're worth anything, honestly. I don't think it's beneficial. I mean, I think... What is it for for those that don't understand? Did I describe it well? Yeah, I mean, you did. I mean, a club is basically a a group of sellers coming together to either pool their funds together or share um, deals they find in terms of viable products to sell that are profitable or it could be a range of different things, right? Um, When you start pooling, well, first off, when you start introducing other sellers as friendly as they might be to you to inventory that is available to all of you, you're essentially bringing in competition, friendly competition, if you want to say, to a marketplace that, you know, if you were doing this on your own, you wouldn't have that. So, you know, I I like friends. I I have a lot of them in this industry, but there are certain things you just wouldn't tell your friends when it comes to business. And that's, I think, one of them. Um, the other thing is when you are um, pooling money together to try to 
um, buy a deal or an opportunity, I think it, it could potentially become hairy in the sense that, you know, you don't know everyone's in, in details in terms of their personal finances, what they need, how, what kind of ROI they are looking for, what their uh, risk tolerance is. Everyone's got different needs at home and, and, and you're not going to be in the same level playing field with that, regardless of what someone tells you at a conference or at a, in, a WhatsApp, in a WhatsApp group. Um, so I think the chances of things going downhill because of that aspect is much more realistic. Um, in that regard, that's why I say that um, things like that are, in my personal opinion, uh, probably not the best idea. Understood. Um, I know Prime Day is coming up, and I heard Amazon's even going to do something closer in, in December to the holidays times. Um, piggybacking off this idea of helping the consumer, is Prime Day something consumers should actually get involved in? I know it's pretty biased because I'm sure you guys would love people to buy more on Amazon, but a deal is a deal only if you need the product, right? I always tell them you can save 100% of your money if you don't buy something you don't need. Should people actually take a serious look at Prime Day or it's just a Hallmark holiday? It's a good question. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see it from the seller's perspective and the buyer's perspective, right? Right. So I personally, Prime Day, I haven't seen anything that I really, really wanted. Um, what, what it ended up, be, what, what it became is sort of where... Amazon is, you know, selecting which things they want to put on sale and it's it's like a category for itself and it's not like you're going on to Amazon and everything is on sale. Um, and it's it's almost as if they're ignoring every other, you know, item that they have listed on their website. So the complaints coming in from, you know, the the seller's end is that don't expect anything major to happen on that day unless you submitted certain items to have, uh, you know, a special running or Amazon actually gave you that offer. So, you know, it, it really depends on what you're looking for. You know, I, I went on, you know, as a, as a buyer and mm-hmm. I'm like, mm, nothing interesting. Nothing there, right. But then there's going to be those people that are like, oh, wow, this, this is a nice, you know, this is a nice deal. Um, it, it's not like Black Friday that like literally everything right. is on sale. And that's so, let's talk about Black Friday. Has that, is Black Friday something that you see a huge bump in Amazon related business? Has that dissipated over the years? Um, I have uh, many brands that uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday is uh, a bigger sales day than any day in December uh-huh. uh, by revenue numbers. Um, certainly, December as a month still outpaces those two holidays. But if you look at it from a day-by-day perspective, I have many brands that those one of those two days or potentially both those days are their top one or two of the year. Um that's, I think, what buyers just have become acclimated to in this industry of just, it's Black Friday, Saturday, Monday, there's a deal, got to buy, buy, buy something. You right? have to, yeah. You have to. Uh, if you didn't buy something, you didn't do it right, right? But I will also tell you in the same token on the seller side that most of my brands don't reduce their prices on those holidays. Um, you know, there's so much, there's something to be said about deals, of course, but there's also something to be said about just how you display your price point. You know, a product that's displayed at $20 is going to sell less effectively than something that's at $19.99. It's a penny difference, but you're going to see a, a likely a dramatic difference in sales because, you know, it's that it's that, it's that that Walmart effect, right? It's, oh, it's $19.97. That's a lot cheaper than $20. It's really not, but it's the effect. Buyers like the idea of a deal. If I've got a product that sells for normally, you know, $32.99, 
I can put it at $32.99, but if I sell it for $34.99 and then give you a $2 off discount code, I'm still selling for the same price, but that's a deal to the consumer, right? Oh, it's $2 off today. I got to buy it today. Um, th there's marketing tricks with that, right? You know, even off e-commerce, why is McDonald's straws so so big? Because you drink the drink faster. I mean, there's there's a whole marketing game to this, mm -hmm. right? Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's the, that, that's the reality here. So uh, consumers will follow what consumers do, but that doesn't mean that the sellers are necessarily offering the best deal. Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway is marketing. It's it's all about the marketing with Amazon. If if somebody wants a takeaway from today's podcast, mm -hmm. it's all about the marketing. Mm -hmm. Bottom line, your product could not be the most amazing product. It's it's the packaging. It's everything around it that will make it. Aton, what are some resources, websites, people that people that want to learn more about this? Um, maybe they do know a lot, but they want to extend their learning. Where should they go to learn more? So there's a lot. But I think that like there's a few different ways to break it down. Um, there's courses. Um, there's a there's a guy named Brandon Young. He has a course called Seller Systems. It's probably the best okay. course in my opinion. You could learn everything and anything about private label branding, advertising. It's like a it's like a university. We'll link to um, that course in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, again, there's that's like one of a hundred. Uh, there are a lot of uh, snake oil salesmen as well. So you got to be careful at what you watch and what you check out. But that's a good course as far as learning. And then. There's a company called Helium 10 that has great resources. A lot of private label startup companies use that website and their tools to do many, many things. Um, again, there's these trade shows that we mentioned. This, the list goes on. But I think courses is one section. Then there's like these mastermind groups, which is another. Then there's just like content and blogs. I mean, you could watch YouTube all day and learn a tremendous amount. My my word of caution is there's a lot that's just not accurate. Right. Or, so you need, or it's right. yeah, or it's out there. You need trusted sources because, to Eddie's point, things change every day, so it has to be a, a recent podcast or or, or con piece of content. And none of these virtual aspects, whether it's a course or YouTube or a forum or a group, replace the true value of in-person networking or true something like that. Um, that's really where you're going to stay at the top of your game. Uh, if you're going to invest money in a course or something to train you on this business. You better make sure that it's from someone who is a seller. There are way too many people in this industry right now that are not sellers and they're marketers. There's a huge difference. This guy is great at creating YouTube content, fancy videos that you know display and pivot and all this stuff, and it looks phenomenal. And you've got the testimonials, and it's you know whatever, right? It looks great to you from the this guy knows what he's talking about, right? But at the end of the day, they probably couldn't explain to you what FBA even is. Mm. Uh, He's making money off affiliate links and his yeah, and the marketing aspect. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the 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 people that are that are the courses that are truly the good ones are the ones where the course content creator, whoever they are, um, truly are sellers. Not has been a seller five ten years ago because, with no disrespect, if you didn't sell in the last five ten years. To try to claim you're an expert in selling today specifically is, is a tough pill to swallow because it's so it's changed so much. Mm -hmm. You could be in e-commerce, that's no question, but as a seller-specific expert who's trying to train other people, if you even sold for five or ten years, that's not acceptable to me to be able to portray yourself as a selling expert. But you're an e-commerce person, that's fine, that's different. Um, similar to, to Similarly to these people who are internet marketers, they know how to market a course, how to sell you a course content of stuff. But is that content good? That's the other question. Understood. Um, I want to end off with some closing remarks, a uh, piece of advice 
you may have for a seller, a buyer, um, maybe a book you've read. You've mentioned some courses, uh, something people should do in 2022, 2023. I'm hoping this content's relevant in five, 10 years as well, because I do think we spoke more holistically about the business that unless Amazon comes out with a flying car and completely pivots. Um, Might happen. Yeah, you never know, right? <laughs> um, by the way, do you all have Amazon Prime? You yes. Use that? Oh, of course. Yes. What about Walmart <laughs> Plus? Do you? Nope. No. Right. So it's interesting how Amazon has really taken over the world. I think they're now the largest shipping company in the world. Um, what are your closing remarks, a thought, something that people should chew on in no specific order? Um, I, I guess I'll start by saying, you know, treat it as a real business, mm. right? I think it's something that people think, you know, they could do it out of their basement, not have a normal schedule, wake up late, go to sleep late. I mean, treat it as a real business, right? And, and I like to talk about the EOS model. I'm in no way an affiliate. I don't get money. What's for, EOS? So EOS stands for the Entrepreneurial Operati Operating System. Basically, it's a process on how to run your business. So, you know, having a clear accountability chart, a hierarchy of exactly, you know, who does what in your organization and, you know, what you do with your data. How do you progress based on data that's coming in or out of the company? Um, having a vision and, of course, going back to the people, right, and, and how val valuable your people are. So it's something that I, I focus on a lot in our business. And I feel like that's, you know, a lot of the reason why, you know, we're able to move forward and in, in a good direction. And when, when we don't, we could take a you know, hard look and see exactly what's not working. So that's something that, you know, you can implement in any business. And I know I mentioned it to Eitan. I don't know if Eddie, me and you had a conversation about it yet. But, you know, if somebody wants to read more about it, they could read the book called Traction Tools. And Love that book. Learn. Oh, yeah, I, that's I, EOS. There I, you go. I got into it. I created that plan i forget the exact word that they call it but i never had a good implement i never hired an implementer which i think is very critical in order to be successful yeah. with eos not just from accountability but best practices so maybe we can talk offline about how sure, i can uh implement that um but yeah eos there's conferences associated with it yeah. there are, I, didn't, I didn't get to go to one yet no, yeah definitely, it sounds like that's your trajectory to, oh absolutely wait you mean there's I'm obsessed. There's, there's conferences outside of amazon no way <laughs> yeah right it's <laughs> <laughs> prosper um when's the next uh or how often do you have these prosper shows and how can people so learn I don't, about that i don't that? run the show anymore but it's um every year usually in march or april mm -hmm. done prospershows.com awesome um I think my biggest piece of advice for the listeners and my fellow business owners or would-be business owners is that you, as you start this business, you know, well, let me take a step back. It's it's a lot easier to build a business from zero to a million than a million to three or three to ten. Yeah. Um, you'll see as you grow, your problems and your pain points become not, I wouldn't say more severe, but they become more numerous and tricky. Mm -hmm. uh, things to navigate while you're traversing those waters. You have to uh, not let yourself one person be running, uh, be running in your business. You can't be running just the day-to-day -day operation yourself for every little aspect of it. You have to work on your business. There's a difference between in and on, right? You want to be on, not in. Um, 
I, my advice to people is to make sure that you don't go too long in the process working in your business to where you cannot get out of it. Mm. Uh, ultimately, if you want to sell a business and the only value is you, it's not worth anything. Because if you're out of it and that business can't run, no one's going to pay you for it. Um, so it's it's really something that I think business owners, especially new ones, don't think about. They don't think, oh, it's not important. I'm just getting started. Actually, that's the best time to think about it because you're not trapped in all these different things that are going left and right sideways at you, right? So um, the earlier you think about something like that and try to, as time allows and as finances allows and everything else, to try to you know, separate out the and 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 push out the the tasks of running your business to other people and having that support team built up for your business to work, to allow you to grow it um, is going to be really really important. Um, you'll find that when you're at you know if you get to that million dollar mark you know, when you want to get then you want to take it to three five or ten you're going to need all the time in the world to to do those things to pull those levers to get to that volume of of sales. Um, and if you're still doing the stuff that is repetitive to just keep the wheels turning, you're never going to have the time. So my suggestion to that is literally write down what you're doing every single day. Look for patterns. Just do it for a week. Mm -hmm. Write everything you've done, but, but, you know, in order what you did to the day and circle what's repetitive. Those things that you're circling that's repetitive, you should be able to offload that to somebody else. You as a business owner should be doing the creative, innovative things that require you to think outside the box and convert those into processes really mm-hmm. um that's something critical i think that people need to understand about yeah i just want to say in eos they call that delegate to elevate mm-hmm. that's really like what that. it is delegate to elevate yep. there's no way otherwise right yep. you you cannot as a business owner you cannot do everything it's not possible mm-hmm. yeah it's not even just amazon specific no it's it's, it's i mean you there's so many aspects in amazon business that apply to just any business in general that if you were that there's only 24 hours in a day and Surely you're not working every one of them. Right. You know, there's there's an aspect of work-life balance. It's unhealthy to be working all the time and have no time to yourself or no time, no downtime, no ability to to take a vacation, to take a break. You, you, we're human, right? Right. So, you know, I'm certain humans have more tolerance than others, and you know, so sometimes it, it depends on on needs, right? But at the end of the day you can't be trapped in your under your own yeah. the weight of your own business understood yeah Eitan any closing remarks advice yeah. I like how you've uh, shared so many practical things in this episode mm-hmm. um, what sure. do people think about practically yeah I just want to keep with my theme of uh, positivity not, go not ahead that anyone's trying to be negative that it's very hard to be successful on Amazon just like it's very hard to start any business I think mm-hmm. like the amount of businesses that stay in business after a year is like I don't know 10-20% mm-hmm. that means 80% of people fail mm-hmm. And if you do get into this, you probably will fail many times. I have for sure. Most of these influencers and people online don't talk about the failure, but it's definitely there. There's cash flow shows, there are issues, there's account suspension, so it's not easy. But I don't think any business is easy. And I think that while there's these challenges, Amazon and online, especially now, I mean, it's still in its infancy. So there's competition in all the all the detractors that we mentioned, but there's so much opportunity. Like I've I've seen people make we have clients like literally four or five dudes in their basement doing hundreds of millions of revenue on Amazon. And they're making a ton of money. It's not so common, but it is doable. Mm. And where else can you just go to a platform? And, you know, a little aside, but just for this community, there was an article in, I forget what, but it was why, why is the Orthodox Jewish community, why are there so many Amazon sellers, which I'm sure you may get asked a lot. And I actually uh, commented uh, to the reporter. Um, but one of the answers, well, there's a bunch of answers, but one of the answers was a lot of, 
people in the community, depending on their level of education, don't necessarily have so much education. That depends on who, right? Don't have a college education. But a lot of Amazon is data, right? It's like Talmud. It's like analysis. It's thought. You don't, for better or worse, you don't have to go to China or meet anyone in person. You can be in your basement if you so choose. I don't necessarily recommend it. Or the first floor it. or second floor. We don't want to. You could be in the third <laughs> floor. Yeah. You could be on your, uh, on your patio. And you could, I, I know guys, they have, they have like 40, $50 million revenue businesses with a strong margin that work at home, that never see the light of day. You know, I mean, they're just, they're just they're by themselves. That's what, what the new world offers. But like specifically in this community where not everyone has a degree, which is fine. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion religiously, whatever it is. This is something that with the right sharp mind and hard work, you can make a lot of money. And that's the bottom line. That's why a lot of people are doing it. Um, that's why a lot of people are into it. It, should, it doesn't mean that everyone can do it. Everyone should do it. And to your point before, you have to know when to stop or, or when to start. I want to add one point because I have a brother that just you know went into business now, and you know he he sees the level of success with people around him, and there's you know this sort of like a, a desperation that you want to get to a certain level, but you, you want to skip through all the hoops, right? Mm-hmm. And I was telling him, you know, remember that everybody has a book, right? And you're seeing the cover and you're seeing the back page. Don't forget, there's so many chapters to get to the end of the book, right? And there's so much work and there's time and, you know, it, it, it feels like, you know, everybody, everybody's able to make it but me. But remember, people actually, like like Eitan said, there are so many failures that people go through to get to where they're getting to. And nobody got there without yep. failing a hundred times or more. So you'll get there if you're okay with that. But don't have this, you know, anxiety that like, I need to get there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It takes time. And, you know, also, I think that it's it's important to note that, you know, as a business owner, like I mentioned earlier, it's important to get out of your your environment, your work, your office, your warehouse, whatever, wherever you're set up. This basement doesn't matter. Um, I know just for me, I took a few days off and was out of town the last few days. But because it's been so long since I was able to get out of my everyday environment, you think about things that you don't think about when you're doing your day to day grind. It just it's natural mm-hmm. um and i think that sellers and as you progress in this business not so much as brand new because you're still soaking it all in but as you progress and you build especially um to take the time out to take a step back and really evaluate your next step is critical because being locked in your same environment day in and day out doing the same stuff you're not allowing your mind to explore those different areas um and you're doing yourself a, your a, a disservice by not allowing yourself to expand on that so uh really critical yeah we'll share all of your contact info in the show notes if people do have questions comments feedback criticism um mm-hmm. we accept it all and we thank you all for coming down today thank, thank you. you thanks for having us hope you enjoyed this episode on amazon we're gonna put their email addresses in the show notes So if you have any follow-up questions, want to network, reach out to them, please do. We're also going to give you a little bit more of a bio and their websites. If you are a new listener, viewer of Kosher Money, please subscribe to us on YouTube. Like our videos. If you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is, subscribe, follow us, leave a five-star review. It really helps us in the ratings, and we cannot thank you enough. If you have a guest suggestion, head over to livinglachayim.com. 
Facebook.com, click on the suggestion tab and let us know who you'd like to see on an upcoming episode of Kosher Money. We've got some exciting episodes for you. We're doing an episode on Miser, how to give charity. We're doing an episode on working less, earning more. We're doing an episode on investing in a recession. Exciting stuff. And a lot of these ideas came because of people like you. But until next time, keep your money kosher. I'm Ellie Langer and I'm out of here. Living L'chaim.